Um, if you've got a Bible, we are in Galatians 1 this morning. Very, very excited about a brand new study for us. We're going to be spending the next several weeks in. I love the book of Galatians. If it's new to you or you haven't read it in a while, I think we're going to approach it in a way that's going to, um, I think, appeal and draw in all of us. Um, God's Word has that kind of impact and that kind of power, I believe. So I want to begin reading the first five verses to set the tone for us this morning. And then we're going to talk about something that might be um, close to home for all of us. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, some things just hit a little closer to home. I think you might can agree on that. Uh, some matters and issues mean more to us than they do to others, don't they? Uh, it may not affect or impact or even register to you, but to me and for me, it might be a big deal. It might mean the world. I may not take or I may think nothing uh, of something that you think is a very big deal. Uh, you may take particular interest in something that I don't even give the time of day. Have you ever wondered why is that? Maybe you know why that is. Uh, what makes some things get, fi get me fired up, but not you? What makes you excited, but not me? What makes some rise to their feet for action and raise their fist while others don't budge? Why do we take umbrage towards something, but others aren't even phased by it? And, and I'm not talking about the things that we're merely interested in, but the things that we're invested in. We've all got those things in our lives, things that we think are so very important, things that we are invested in with our heart and our soul. The areas where we've got skin in the game, where we've got something on the line over which we've spilled blood, sweat, and tears. Think about it. Um, are there people, are there issues, are there things that get you fired up positively or negatively that maybe don't even move the needles for somebody else? Are there things that you care so deeply about that maybe somebody else hasn't even ever thought about? I think, can we say that there are? Are there people that you would go to battle for that other people might not even know exist? Of course that's the case. Why is that? Well, the reason why there are people, places, things, subjects, issues that you get fired up about that I don't and that I get fired up about that you don't is because for us, it's personal, right? When something's personal, you aren't detached from it. You're present. You show up. When something's personal, you aren't checked out. You're laser-focused. When something's personal, you don't watch from afar. You see to it yourself, don't you? What are some of the things that you take personally? Family? That's better be something you take personally, right? But, of course, some of them are better at it than others. Relationships are obviously deeply personal. No one can fill your role in your place but you. I, I know this is a hot-button issue, but everyone has their reasons for being at different places with politics, with national issues that are so deeply personal for some but don't even register for others. And here's the thing. Maybe, maybe you're someone that maybe you think everyone should be as invested as you. Have you ever felt like that? Where you just think, I don't know how they're not as into it as I am. How are they not as, as, as fired up and as invested as I am? And of course you think that. It's personal for you. When it comes to different things, different forms of advocacy, this is so true, isn't it? 
Follow someone online and you'll see what issues they're deeply personal to them. Follow somebody on the road and look at their bumper stickers. You'll see what they're deeply, uh, you know, interested in or invested in. Uh, big issues, right? People that describe themselves as pro X, Y, or Z usually are more than just fans of something. They're for something, as in they're cheerleaders and champions for it. And even for the less heavy issues, for the small issues, the lighthearted things. When you're into certain sorts of entertainment, sports, pop culture, music, if you're into something, it's personal for you, isn't it? You wear their t-shirt, you buy their merchandise, you wear it and you let everybody know about it. And maybe on the flip side, maybe there's a health issue, an area of public concern that you've experienced hardships and setbacks in that you're vocal about and you bring attention to because you've been there and it couldn't get any more personal for you but maybe other people don't know what that's like, so that's why they don't say anything. And maybe whether it's something lighthearted, like something you're a fan of, or something serious, like an issue that is impacting hundreds of thousands of people, the reason why we get as, impact, as invested as we get, the reason why we get as focused as we get, the reason why we get as excited or you know, invested as we get is because it's personal to us. Now, can anybody relate to me this morning? Surely all of our hearts beat for and burn for any given subject that we've mentioned, and Maybe nobody gets it but you. But if we were to spend five minutes with you, we'd be convinced that at least for you, it's deeply personal. You may not convince me, but if I spend a few minutes with you and you tell me your heart of hearts, you pour yourself out to me about something you're, you're so excited about, something you're so invested in, I may not be convinced, I may not be won over, but I'll be you know, convinced, I'll be uh, certain that at least for you, it's deeply personal. Now, whether this issue is lighthearted or super serious, we'd be able to know from your emotion, from your enthusiasm, from your earnestness, from your passion, from the burden you carry. I think those two words are really the two words that I've tried to keep from saying until now because they're really the two words we're going to focus on for the rest of this sermon. That you can see when somebody's passionate, can't you? If you can't see, they probably don't really care too much about something. But when you can see their passion, when you can see the weight of the burden on someone's shoulders, for good or for bad or for good or for worse, you can tell that for them, it's personal. Now, these are two big words that are perfect for this conversation. Now, let me ask you this, because I've got a hunch that there might be some area or areas of your life that if someone were to question or contest your personal feelings or commitment, if someone were to kind of step on your toes about something you're passionate about, someone you're passionate about, or if someone were to kind of, you know, come at you in a weird way about a burden you carry, a thing, an issue, a subject, or conviction, and I think you're here with me, I'm sure, when if someone were to question the passion or burden that drives us, we may become a bit defensive, might we? Have you ever been there? When somebody questions, because it's not an if, it happens, doesn't it? When somebody questions or throws doubt toward a passion or a burden that drives you, that you carry, that carries you, you can become a, a bit defensive, can't you? When somebody throws water and when belittles, downplays, or perhaps even that doesn't reciprocate the same level of conviction, maybe you're a bit incredulous. As in, I'm unable to believe that someone else doesn't believe or feel the same about something that I do. Now, y'all know me. I'm, well, I'm not passionate about anything, of course. If you've been around me long enough, sometimes, you know, I can wonder, why, why doesn't everybody feel the same about that that I do? Uh, because, come on, when something is all the world to you, it's hard to imagine a world where everyone else doesn't feel the same. Now, when I first started out in ministry, um, 
thankfully it's been so long ago. Actually, it has been 10 years ago when I first started out preaching. I didn't have a lot of stories to tell. I mean, I didn't have these deep, moving stories that, you know, sometimes I hear preachers tell these stories. I'm like, did you make that up? I mean, it can't be that good. Uh, you know, but uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I, I, I didn't have these stories to tell, you know, and hey, God called me to preach. I can't help that I'm 19 and the only thing I can talk about are things that nobody wants to hear about. But when I first started preaching, you know, I had this kind of, I had this uh, come to Jesus moment. It wasn't with Jesus. It was people that weren't like Jesus at all. Um, but I had this kind of encounter with some people that told me I needed to stop talking about some of the stuff I was talking about. And I'm thinking, well, what do you want me to talk about? And then I just decided, you know what? I, I'm going to, all you're going to get is the Bible and the Bible and the Bible, and that'll make you happy. Not so much. People like to hear stories, but not certain stories. But, 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 we all, sometimes, I'm guilty of this, you know, I, I've, I've been good this year. I haven't talked about some of the stuff that I won't mention today as much as I used to, but it's been a serious year. We've had to take things more, a little more, um, you know, a little more serious. But I, sometimes it's hard for me to think, well, why doesn't everybody love Star Wars? I mean, I love it. You should love it. I mean, you know, I, well, I think about it all the time. I listen to the mutant. No, I don't do that. Um, but why doesn't everybody love that stuff? And maybe something bigger issue, you know, why doesn't everybody, you know, get fired up about, you know, the Greek behind John chapter 3 like I do? I mean, John invented his own Greek word in John 3.16. Nobody talks about that. It's not using any other form of literature in the entire history of Greek. And he invented a word. That makes me feel get kind of giddy. Nobody else wants to hear about that. But it's hard for me sometimes to not think that you would be and should be as passionate or as burdened about something that I am. And maybe, yeah, some people pass on it, but say they pass by and they throw shade on you for something you like and something you love, something that deeply moves you or that is a big deal to you. You might get a little testy about them, might you? Now, thankfully, thankfully, we live in a world where everybody keeps their opinions to themselves. We live in a world where everybody respects each other and nobody ever, I mean, nobody even thinks about telling somebody how wrong they are. Thankfully, we live in a world where nobody asserts their opinion as more right than others. Uh, we live in a world where nobody tells other parents how to parent. Nobody shoves their beliefs down other people's throats and say that what you believe already isn't important as what I believe. I mean, you know, why are we even having this conversation today? Everybody respects everybody. When we show others our passion and our conviction, people just are so nice and so cordial and so interested. Nobody ever rolls their eyes or thinks how lame that is. And especially nobody ever gossips. Nobody ever goes online and shares or comments on things that talk about how wrong other people are. Good thing we don't live in that kind of world. Good thing we don't live in that awful world, right? Hmm. This message might actually be important if we did. The truth is, the truth is we live in a world where very seldom do people care about what we care about, much less respect our convictions about anything. Now, y'all aren't like this, but there are some people out there, right? We live in a world where if anybody thinks we're wrong, they don't just tell us that they may even try to make us feel bad about feeling good about what we think is right, but what they think is wrong. Copy that. Has anybody ever been there? Maybe you've been the person making someone feel bad about what they think is right, but you think is wrong, but we've probably been there feeling bad because somebody else was not a nice person. Now, there are a number of reasons why this happens. Maybe they're just grumpy. Maybe they just need to be happy, or I don't know. But maybe we're just unhappy, and we don't want anybody to be happy. 
Uh, maybe they're just jealous or we're just jealous. Maybe we tear things down that build others up and we don't know any better. Who knows? But here's what I know. And here's what I think you know. Being contested can sometimes make us more passionate and more focused. Being dismissed can sometimes make us more burdened and strengthen our convictions. Ask anybody that's ever changed the world. And I think this statement is true. Maybe we go as far to prepare our defense or give a defense. And it helps us strengthen and sharpen that argument. But and here's why we're talking about this as Christians, why we're talking about this in church. And while whether you're a believer or you're a seeker, an old-timer or a first-timer, I think this message is perfect for you. Because in this world, our faith is going to be tested and contested. Our passion for Jesus and our burden for his word and his world will be dismissed and even maybe ridiculed. We're going to study the book of Galatians over the next few weeks, which features the most powerful, passionate, organized, and clear defense of a man's faith that has ever been laid out. So if you're a believer, this will help you organize your own thoughts, develop your own defense, and that's important because Peter, one of the number one followers of Jesus, said this in a letter that he wrote. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, and do so with gentleness and respect. So if you're a Christian, this matters to you. This is important for you. If you're not a believer, I think this will turn your head and your heart more than a few times as you hear a believer defend their faith and argue for their faith so cohesively and comprehensively, all with clarity and simplicity. Now, I want to give you a little background about the book of Galatians because you might not know about it. Uh, you haven't read it in a while. Maybe you don't know much about it, and that's okay. Galatians is not really a book. It's just a few pages long. Would not make a very thick book. Of course, it's a letter, a letter written to people who lived in the province or the region of Galatians. Galatians is one of the oldest letters written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it around 48 AD. It's one of his earliest letters uh, that, that is included in the Bible. Maybe 1 Thessalonians was written earlier, but we don't really know that, but we know for a fact based on how many copies were made and how even secular scholars would agree, people that study the Bible as just a book of literature that don't, aren't spiritual, they will say that Galatians was definitely written around 48 AD and was definitely written by a man named Paul, which is incredible if you go down to the, into the study and all that. So Galatians was written around 48 AD. Paul had planted a church, we'll talk about that later, had planted a church in the region of Galatia, which is basically the northern area of Turkey. Open up the, a, a, a map, look in the back of your Bible, you'll see that the country of Turkey, the northern region, the mountainous region, is the area of Galatia. So it's not really a city, it would be a number of, it would be an area like a county or a province, even a state. Um, in our uh, understanding. The short version of the story is from the very beginning Paul, of Paul's ministry, he dealt with opposition and detractors. There are a number of reasons as to why, but the what of it is that Paul was a former leader in the old Jewish religion. And that drew some ire when he left that religion. The old Jewish religion that rejected Jesus Paul became a Jesus follower. Previously, a Jewish man, a Jewish believer, became a follower of Jesus believing that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish law and prophets. He was the Savior that could do and would do what God's Word had declared and put us in a right standing with God, forgiving our sins and enabling us to live for Him. Paul's ministry began in a large part by convincing many Jews around the area of Turkey, the Mediterranean area, to trust in Jesus. And by doing so, he would convert synagogues, Jewish communities, 
into churches, which would begin opening doors to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and these Gentiles would begin becoming Christians. And, and people that had never heard of Abraham, Moses, David, or Isaiah suddenly were trusting in Jesus as their Savior because of what happened in Jerusalem 15 years prior was spreading everywhere. As Paul went, so did the Spirit of God in this movement. So in response to this, there were some Jewish leaders who mobilized teams to counter every word of Paul. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? What if you worked somewhere where as soon as you walked out the door, someone showed up who was the opposite of you? Because you think you do a good job. I'm sure you do. You're a good teacher. You're a good employee. You do the things the right way. Maybe as a parent, what if someone showed up in your house and said, everything they just taught you is wrong, but they looked like you and they kind of sounded like you and the people that are listening, are kind of having a hard time thinking, well, well, you know, what's going on? What if you were someone that you worked hard and you built up something that's so perfect and somebody came in right after you and they tore it down? Now, if you're a mom, you know, parent, you know this because when you make a house all nice and squeaky clean, your kids come through and they make it look like a world war just took place, right? Now, maybe husbands, sometimes we do that to our wives as well. But if you have ever tried to build something, you know what it's like to see that thing torn apart. That's what Paul was dealing with when he was starting these churches. These Jewish leaders who were so angry at him for leaving their faith, so angry at him for his defecting of, of Judaism and tearing apart what they believed was the only way and leaving for a man that they killed, they were so angry they actually rose up and organized a, a group and a unit to counter everything that Paul was saying and to do so in a subtle, in a very deceptive way. And then there also were opportunists. Now, these opportunists were people that thought Paul was leaving fame on the floor because here's the thing. Paul wasn't becoming rich out of this. He could have exhorted a lot of money out of people. He wouldn't take any money. He was doing this out of the goodness of his own heart. He was doing this because he felt convicted and called to do it. Paul wouldn't take any money other than what would, he needed to live. He wouldn't, he wouldn't take any fame from people. He didn't want people putting his face on the side of a tour bus or on a billboard. He didn't want a spot on TBN. He didn't want a YouTube channel. He didn't want any of that stuff that might make him famous he just wanted to get Jesus to more people he wanted to be a behind-the-scenes worker that preached and left and left people with Jesus and there were people that watched Paul do this and thought Paul you could be a superstar people will pay to listen to you people will fill up arenas for you people want to give you money people want to make you their idol and if you're not going to be that for them we'll be that for them because we can learn how to talk and we can learn how to walk and we can learn how to preach and we might can do what you're doing and do it better and actually take in the fame. So Paul dealt with a lot of people that were really coming at him from all angles. They were really trying to mess with the movement he was working so hard for out of such good, a good place that came at it with such a bad intent. Now Paul's passion and burden was undeniable. He was so driven and so motivated that he almost was with ease persuaded people to catch his fire. Paul deflected any would-be praise or attention, which proved to be even more effective in spreading the gospel, but his opponents and detractors worked relentlessly and recklessly to tear Paul down, to tear down his ministry, and to tear apart the faith of many. By attacking Paul, it would make anything he said subject to doubt and question, to which they would be ready to provide a different gospel, a different set of beliefs, that didn't help anyone but some religious system that was all about man and not about helping people. So that's what Paul was dealing with. Now, this is what we began our conversation around 
When somebody comes after the thing you love, it's almost as bad as them attacking you, isn't it? Because often, the things we're passionate about, the burdens we carry, are deeply intertwined with who we are. Our passions and burdens are so deeply personal, it's hard to separate us from them. So Paul after having what he had worked so hard for in the region of Galatia come under fire, seeing his reputation, his work, and the faith of many be shaken, ends up in a big meeting with church leaders in Jerusalem. A lot of gossip had spread. Lies were spreading about that led to a meeting with the church leaders of the ancient world. In Acts 15, you can read about it. The aftermath is that Paul is more emboldened than ever because he has the support of church leaders. James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, John, and all the gang. So Paul comes back to do more missions. He goes back to do more missions, but before departing, he writes a letter that would circulate throughout the region of Galatia where he did his first mission. The letter in front of us today is the letter that Paul wrote after the meeting in Jerusalem, and he sent around the city, around the area of Galatia some nearly 2,000 years ago. This is one of the few letters, maybe the only letter, that Paul wrote himself as opposed to talking and having someone write it for him. Paul would, 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 would really just preach. And he had, a, he had an amanuensis, he had a, a secretary that would write down what he would say and organize it into thoughts and organize it into paragraphs and sections like we read the, read the letters. Galatians is one of the few letters, maybe the only letter, that he wrote with his own hands. This is also one of the only letters where Paul does not do a typical introduction. He doesn't do the pleasantries and shake hands with people. He jumps right into the issue. And it's a very unique letter in that Paul's tone is very emotional. He's not as polished and systematic as he normally is. The reason for all this is simple. The matter at hand was deeply personal for Paul. He was writing to defend himself, to defend his faith and his passion and his burden. He was also writing to defend and protect and strengthen the work of his hands, the churches and believers, who suddenly found themselves doubting what they had beforehand embraced with relief and joy Right out of the gate, it's as if he's on trial. And the first five verses are like an opening statement in a court trial, if you will. Notice Paul comes out of the gate and says, Paul, an apostle, not of man, as in I wasn't called by some man. I didn't go to the school to become this thing. God made me this thing. And then I went through a, 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 a process of getting prepared for this. But God is the one who appointed me and anointed me for this ministry. I am in this because it's personal. I am an apostle. And that's a big word. You don't see it often in the Bible. But when you see it, you should perk your ears and your eyes up because that means we're talking about somebody that bore a very exclusive mantle. A apostle is an exclusive title held by and reserved for only 15 people in history. This is a big deal. Now in Matthew 10, Jesus appointed 12 of his disciples. He had many disciples, hundreds of disciples. He picked 12 and called them the 12 apostles. Now you know why they're 12? Because there's 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus was trying to do everything like Old Testament wise and make everybody see that he was the fulfillment of God's word. He picked 12 apostles for each tribe of Israel to show that they were the fulfillment of God's plan. But along the way, there were some that defected, right? Because why are there 15 if there was just 12? Well, there were three more added along the way. Of course, Judas left the game 
gang, and he committed you know, treason, he betrayed Jesus, and he, was, he died. They replaced Judas with a guy named Matthias, so that's number 13. Number 14 is James, the brother of Jesus. The reason why James, the brother of Jesus, got added is because James, the brother of John, was beheaded in Acts 12. James, the brother of John, was killed in early persecution, and James, Jesus' brother, who did not become a Christian until after Jesus' resurrection... James, the brother of Jesus, became a Jesus follower, was appointed by Jesus himself to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he became number 14. Number 15 is the Apostle Paul. And Paul is not just an apostle. He is the apostle sent to the Gentiles. As in, he was the one guy sent not to manage the church in Jerusalem to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. He was the guy sent to spread the word to the whole rest of the world. And more on that in a minute. But let's go ahead and read verses 6 through 10. And this is Paul's impassioned defense for his ministry. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. You can tell Paul wrote this himself because the preacher repeats himself a lot. He didn't have a secretary cleaning this up for him. Paul says, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So that's some pretty strong language for Paul, isn't it? He's saying, if anybody tells you something besides what I have told you as the apostle, the one who wrote half the New Testament, the one who took the gospel to the Gentiles, the one that we are benefactors from, he says, if anybody changes this message, let them be accursed or condemned. He says, for I do, do I persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I please men, I would not be a servant or a bondservant of Christ. Paul is fired up about this notion that these people might be turning away or considering turning away from Jesus as if everything Paul had taught them had been built on some lie. Notice he's explicit in his rhetoric and his passion is coming off the page, putting everything on the line, using such strong language as in there is no other hope in the world, there is no other pathway to God than that of Jesus Christ. Paul acknowledges this may not be popular for a number of different reasons. In his situation, because of the Jewish rejection, in our world it may be over some other sort of opposition. But nonetheless, there is unpopularity sometimes in this message. But Paul puts it all on the line and says there is nothing more important than being on the Lord's side. Now maybe you're wondering, how and why would someone become so passionate about religion? Why would he be so strong and charged in his language to say that if anyone who suggests or promotes any other way of life as being fulfilling and satisfying and saving, why would someone say that there's only one way to experience that and that's only through Jesus Christ? How could somebody become so passionate about that? You want to know why? Because for Paul, it was deeply personal. Listen to him explain this in verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which, I, which was preached to me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was it taught, I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard by my, about my former conduct in Judaism. Maybe you haven't heard of this. For I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. 
Now, if this is new to you, maybe your eyes kind of get big because you think, what, really? I tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. And that same fire that was causing his opponents to come at him had once driven Paul himself. But Paul's life was radically transformed by an encounter with God, an intervention that led to a personal relationship with Jesus. Paul was so determined to uphold his heritage. He was so nationalistic. He was instantly, he rejected Christianity and he targeted Christians. Because Rome had sanctioned the murder of its founder, they gave the Jewish leaders the blessing to wipe out its followers. So Paul, at the time known in Hebrew as Saul, volunteered his services to basically become a bounty hunter and hunt down Christians and murder them. His first claim to fame was the murder of Stephen, over whose dead body he stood victoriously. Here's what Acts tells us about that. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house to house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So you can imagine the morale at the church at this time was very low. Because Stephen, their great new leader, was dead. And Saul was seemingly successful and had this you know, all the support of the world at trying to stop what they were building. And then something happened. On his way to round up a, a house full of believers in Damascus, God stopped Paul in his tracks and threw his entourage into dismay. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes I like to imagine, what would it be like to be God? And then I realize, wow, that would be really awful for the world and for myself. But if you were God, and this was what you were watching from heaven... What would you do if you had a chance to have a little one-on-one with Saul? I bet it wouldn't go like this. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was bloodthirsty. But if he might find someone belonging to the way. Jesus said, I am the way. That's where the old movement, that's where the name came from. But Paul, or Saul, went on his way. I like that play of words, don't you? He was looking for those that were following the way. And as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And if you could write the next verse yourself, it would probably not end like this. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul would say, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting people that are not doing the, what the Old Testament says they should do. I'm persecuting an it. I'm persecuting a movement. I'm persecuting a religion that is wrong. And oh, by the way, if you are God, and I've, I've got it wrong, why are you asking me a question like this? Why, why, if you could stop me in my tracks, why wouldn't you just kill me? I mean, I'm killing people that I think are wrong, and if you are God, and I'm wrong, then I should be in pretty bad shape. I should be toast. So Saul, dealing with all those emotions, says, 
In response, who are you, Lord? Are you God? I mean, I've told myself I was in your will all this time. I've read the Old Testament. I've read everything that you can read. I know everything you can know. I'm doing what I think is God's will. And now suddenly I'm talking to God and you're not angry at me. You're talking to me like this is some personal matter for you. And God responds, or Jesus responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You're not persecuting an it. You're persecuting my body, my children. And suddenly all this begins to just soak in on Paul. In that moment, he understands what he had been missing the entire time. As doggedly devoted he was to religion, he was as devoted as he was devoted to it. He wasn't a better person. He was angry and bitter and cynical. And listen, if you're devoted to religion, and this can happen to church members, religion makes people so miserable because you try so hard to earn something and work for something you'll never get. And you get mad when others get it. And you wonder why they're getting it because they're not as good as you. And the reality of it is religion never makes anybody any better or anybody any happier. It just makes everybody hate everybody. When Paul understood the gospel, he realized what we can realize, that Jesus didn't come to begin or continue a religion. He came to end it once and for all. He came to give us something better. A relationship with God. And the gospel shows us how personal this is. Paul realized the church was personal to God. Jesus came to defend His own and extend His own hand to Paul. So while stopping Paul from killing more, he didn't stop Paul forever. He converted Paul. He asked Paul to join the team. Isn't that incredible? Jesus came to wash away every sin on the basis of grace, not works. He came to forgive everyone on the basis of mercy, not merit. He came to bring everyone to equal ground and give everyone an opportunity to go higher through His resurrection, receive a Spirit who lives and changes us. We aren't devoted to laws or buildings or days or routines. We're devoted to Jesus, a living, breathing, risen Savior who is alive in heaven and in our hearts. You can have a personal relationship with Him today and find this connection to God that religion will never give you. Whereas religion will treat you like a slave, its slave, we will struggle under its judgment. A relationship with God makes us His child and we are saved by Jesus. And now a relationship isn't some superficial thing. It's not a light thing. It's the most important thing in your life. If you enter a relationship with God, we are welcoming an active and present Jesus into our hearts. It will change your life. He will change your life. Because this is personal. Christianity is deeply and only personal. Now you know why Paul was so passionate about this. Why he was so burdened for the world. This was a personal cause for Paul because he experienced the gospel's power himself. He was there when it happened, when Jesus changed and saved him. He was there. Of course he was. Where he was headed and where he ended up could not have been farther apart. Listen to Paul conclude his origin story. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh or blood. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went to Arabia. He went to the desert and spent time with God, returning then to Damascus. Then after three years, he went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, remained with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. 
Concerning the things I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was unknown by the face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once destroyed, tried to destroy, and they glorify God in me. Now listen, this is Paul in the beginning. This is Paul as he says in verse 22, nobody knew who he was yet. Walk up to a random stranger and say, have you ever heard of the Apostle Paul? They might have never, ever given Christianity the time of day, but they know who Paul is. Nobody had heard of his name or had saw his face. Little did he know what we would be doing all these years later. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he used to destroy. I wonder what will happen with his life. He who used to be against us is now for us. I don't think I can overstate the gravity of this statement, the importance of this moment in history. When at a church service in Antioch, the Holy Spirit said, Whom will I send? And Paul said, Here I am, send me. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. He spent the rest of his life, the next 20 years, going to cities all around the world, setting up residence for months, setting up sometimes for years, engaging with Jews and Gentiles, telling them about his faith, organizing communities around those faiths until it was able to function on his own. And then he would leave and go to another town and do it again. Just a few minutes with Paul was enough to tell, and a few conversations could be enough to change because of his infectious, winsome spirit. Now, whether you believe that sounds like it would work or not, or whether you think that sounds like a good idea or a good life or not, guess what? The reason you are here today is because of the Apostle Paul. Listen, prior to 47 A.D., there were two churches in the world. Jerusalem and Antioch. Two churches. Just two. In 47 AD, Paul volunteered at his church to obey the call from God and go to, their, go to spread the faith around the area of Galatia. Cities like Iconium, Lystra. Eventually, he would take the message into Greece, to Philippi, Corinth, and Athens. And after that, he would venture as far as Rome, Italy, and set his heart on going to Spain and even France. Did he make it that far west? Legend only speculates. But here's what we know. 2,000 years later, there are a few more than two churches in the world. Hello? There are actually over 37 million congregations. And we'll never know the total because many of them meet in secret. Over half a million of those are in the United States alone. All because one man obeyed the call to go chase number three. He ended his life. We're sure he started 14. He might have even got to 20. Because it was personal to him. And as we've learned, it was personal to him because it was first personal to God. Maybe you've always heard that God was so angry at the world, so frustrated with it. Maybe that's how he's been presented to you. 
the old prophet Isaiah says this is how God felt about the world. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. Uprightness cannot enter. That sounds upset, doesn't it? Truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey, as in those that try to look for hope are opposed and targeted. The Lord sees this and was displeased and is displeased because there is no justice. But here's what I want you to know. God observed all that was unjust about creation, all that was unworthy, and all that was worthy of condemnation. And in His holiness and His awesome splendor, He prepared a defense for all that was defacing His creation and misrepresenting its Maker's intent, except His defense was not what you think it would be. The prophet said, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then His own arm brought salvation to man, and His own righteousness would uphold Him. Instead of defending righteousness, He came to defend the unrighteous by saving us, by redeeming us, by restoring us, by demonstrating His love for us, by becoming one of us, because sin contested for you and God came to save you Himself. He was willing to look away from who we had been and all that we had done, believing in who we could be and what we could do. And that's Paul's story, isn't it? Maybe that's your story. If it's not your story, it can be. Your personal story. Paul didn't believe it initially, but when he saw for himself, he was set at defense for the gospel. You, we can see for ourselves today. God is calling you, every, every one of you right now. His gospel and His love for you is unchanging. You can exchange your sin for His grace today. It's that easy. Paul was so passionate about the gospel of Jesus because it saved his life. When he lay there blinded by heaven's light, he did not feel judged and he was not judged. He felt called and he felt loved because he was. He called out to Jesus and Jesus saved his life and Jesus changed his life just like he did mine, just like he can yours. Because to God, this is personal. Saving you and knowing you is his personal desire take Paul's word for it take my word for it but better than that see for yourself God is calling every one of you today would you answer that call let me pray for you father we're thankful for this invitation that you give us it's so incredible you were so good to us your mercy endures at the against our sin God somebody in the house today they already know all this they've already been saved but hearing it like this and hearing Paul defend himself and his passion Lord it resonated with them and they want to they want to start fresh today they want to be renewed and they want to be revived in you Father if there's anybody in the house today that they have never heard the gospel or they don't believe in Jesus and they've never made a personal relationship with him but after hearing what you, how you feel about them and what you think about them and what you believe about them, they want that. They want that personal relationship with you like the Apostle Paul had and so passionately defended. 
God, would you move in this house today? Would you move through this stream? Would you move to all those that are hearing and invite them to make this personal? Would you come and make it personal? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.